the best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. Number 11. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. The Second Vatican Council was the most significant event in the history of the Church during the 20th century, and many would say during the previous four centuries. And this week, we witnessed the 60th anniversary of its opening in 1962. It was October, the month that the Beatles released their first single in the United Kingdom, Love Me Do. It was also the month of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, there's been no denying that there has been debate, argument, quarrels over the meaning of the Second Vatican Council. Was it a new paradigm of doing church, focused on restructuring the church for more democratic participation, maybe even the democratizing of doctrine, as we may be seeing in this German synodal way? Or was it the church's attempt to address the civilizational crisis uh, and to present Jesus Christ as the key to understanding humanity in the world. My guest, George Weigel, is the author of To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II. George serves as a distinguished senior fellow of Washington's Ethics and Public Policy Center, and we know him, of course, as the author of the outstanding biography of John Paul II. George, good to have you back here. Thanks. Thank you, Al. Happy uh, 60th anniversary. And to you. Uh, it's common to say that the problems occurring since the Second Vatican Council are the result of the Council, and if we could just get back to the Church of the 1950s, we'd be all back on track. Response? Well, that's nonsense, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I knew that was an easy one. (laughs) This fantasy of the rock-solid Church of the 1950s I, I think is um, uh, is is blown up uh, when you consider that it was the when you look at the the, the exodus from rectories and convents in the late 1960s. Yeah, those were the people most recently formed. That's right. In that seemingly well-running machine of 1950s Catholicism. Yeah. Uh, a, B, you cannot read the Catholic reality simply through the prism of the American Church. Catholicism is a global phenomenon. Some of the smartest people in the Church, including Hans Urs von Balthasar and Joseph Ratzinger, were writing in the 1950s that the Church had to uh, leave its bunker mentality, rekindle its Christocentric faith, and get about the business of converting a world that had become simply irreligious. As John Henry Newman had warned it it, it was becoming in the late 19th century. So, uh, in the book, I try to explain why the Council was necessary, what the Council actually taught, and how it was authoritatively interpreted by two men of the Council, John Paul II and Benedict XVI. Yeah. When people talk about the Second Vatican Council, uh, why it was called, the first word that comes to mind is aggiornamento, or usually translated, update. Bring, bring the Church in step with the modern age. Why is this the wrong place to begin in understanding the Council? It, it was, it's the wrong place to begin because it ignores the 
most significant movement uh, in Catholic intellectual life uh, leading up to the Second Vatican Council, which was called the Razor Small Movement, a movement to reground the Church's proposal to the world, and indeed the Church's self-understanding, in the Bible, in the theology of the Fathers of the Church, and to move the Church beyond a merely logical or syllogistic presentation of, of the faith. Um, so the Council was indeed about learning how to make the enduring truths of Catholic faith hearable, if you will, understandable in, in uh, modernity, but that was to be done through a deepening appropriation of the Church's ancient tradition, which begins with the Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so often uh, what people point out is that uh, what seemed to happen uh, is that, at least in America, that uh, the message of the Council was to uh, accommodate the world rather than work for its transformation. This is another mistake uh, in interpreting the Council that actually began during the Council. Uh, and I discuss in the book how the rather quick media uh, spin, as we would say now on Vatican II, is a great battle between liberals and conservatives. Right. Right. Translate good guys and bad guys or cowboys <laughs> and Indians or whatever you like. Right. Um, uh, just fundamentally misses the nature of the Church, as, as uh, my old and dear friend Cardinal Francis George said at his first press conference when he was appointed Archbishop of Chicago and was asked, of course, are you a liberal or a conservative? Yeah. And uh, Francis George said the Catholic Church is not about left and right, it's about true and false. And what the Second Vatican Council was intended to do was give true a more compelling expression. And it's hard to do that if you're parsing everything. It's hard to understand how the Council did that if you're parsing everything in these political terms. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also a fundamental misunderstanding of what ecumenical councils are, embedded in this notion that you mentioned at the beginning of paradigm shifts or whatnot. Uh, the Catholic Church does not do paradigm shifts. The Catholic Church does development of doctrine, uh -huh. uh, brilliantly analyzed uh, by the aforementioned John Henry Newman. But we don't do paradigm shifts because the paradigm was given us by the Son of God. Yeah. And we have no authority <laughs> to uh, alter his paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. What we do have the responsibility to do is to develop our self-understanding in continuity with the great tradition of the Church, so that we can meet the challenge of the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, in new cultural and social circumstances. And that's what the intention of John XXIII for Vatican II was. That's what I was just going to ask you. There are three, you mentioned three uh, moments where we actually can discern his intent for the uh, Second Vatican Council, including, and probably the most important one, 
was uh, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, uh, Mother Church Rejoices, his opening address to the council on October 11, 1962. Can you summarize what he said? Uh, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, I think, is the prism through which one should read uh, the documents of the council in their proper order. Uh, There the Pope said the first task of the council is to pass on to this historical moment what he called the sacred deposit of our faith, Uh, the fullness of Catholic truth, we might say, in a slightly different vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need to do that in a way that this cultural and social moment can hear, so we're going to have to learn how to do that in in a fresh and compelling way. But at the center of that, the Pope said, must be Christ himself. Uh, Because the central truth of Catholic faith is that the Son of God entered human history in order to reveal to us both the face of the merciful Father and the full truth about our humanity and its noble destiny. That's what we need to put up front, Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and present in his mystical body, the Church. Now, in a radio address precisely a month before that, on September 11, 1962, the Pope gave his own one-sentence description of what the purpose of the Council is. He said the purpose of the Council is evangelization. So, what I take from this is that the Second Vatican Council was far more about Christifying the world mm-hmm. than about changing the Church. Yeah, yeah. so now, friendship, with, Christi- friendship with I Christ mean, is the remedy for modernity's confusions and conflicts. Uh, not reinventing the Church, but friendship with Christ. Because there we find the answer to the question that had been making such a mess of the modern world for so long— what is the human person? Like, yeah. Where do we come from? What is our destiny? Are we just congealed stardust? Or right. is there something more to us than that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have to remember, too, the Second Vatican Council comes, you know, shortly after the Second World War. And the, the, big, the large questions that were raised by the Holocaust and the, the, the cheapening of human life. So this question, what is the human person, uh, wasn't a mere abstraction uh, for the Council Fathers. No, it wasn't. And, and in fact, the the parade of horribles, if you will, goes back to the First World War, yeah. where, yeah. you know, it, it, it seems more and more in the retrospective of over a hundred years now that, you know, European civilization really tried to commit suicide for, for four years. And out of that came a deeply dumbed-down view of humanity, mm-hmm. uh, which took various weird forms, whether that's, you know, the Nazi view that uh, you are what your racial composition is, or the communist view that we're all just, just um, uh, the exhaust fumes of the means of production, yeah. or the utilitarian view that we're all just little twitching bundles of desires. Yeah. Uh, the Church had to lift up a nobler humanism, and that is a Christocentric humanism. Uh, well, you've mentioned communism. Let me just ask a quick question, uh, and that is, 
why is no, very little, I think there's one sentence or so that refers directly to communism in the council documents. Uh, do you know what was the reason for that? The, it's often said that the Second Vatican Council did not condemn communism, which it should have. I point out in the book, in To Sanctify the World, that if you read uh, the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World closely, it has a risk, um, demolition, if you will, mm-hmm. of state-sponsored atheism. Yeah. That is unmistakably communist. Yes, that's right. So it's just not, it's just not true. Okay. George, I hear the music coming up. Hold it there. We'll come back, continue the conversation. My guest, George Weigel, is author of this outstanding uh, new reflection on the Second Vatican Council. It's called To Sanctify the World, the Vital Legacy of Vatican II. We'll be right back. The best. 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 Of Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 11. Good afternoon to you. My guest is George Weigel. He is author, most recently, of To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II. And this week, as we've been focusing on the Second Vatican Council uh, in honor of its 60th, the 60th anniversary of its opening, uh, we're trying to get a, a good idea of what the purpose of the council was and also uh, what happened that ended up breeding so much uh, controversy. George, you you mentioned uh, something I actually had not really seen before. You mentioned Jacques Maritain, the renowned Catholic philosopher, close friend of Pope Paul VI. He didn't have a formal role at the Council, but his work on Christian humanism, democracy, human rights, laity, Christian-Jewish relations, all left their mark on the Council's texts. And he even was recognized in the closing ceremonies, uh, because Paul VI saw him as embodying the intellectual life, his in, the intellectual life in service of the Church and of Christ. As early as 1966, though, he has published this book, The Peasant of Garonne, which is really his lament for what he fears is the wrong direction that interpreters of the Council uh, or even those who participate in the council are now taking the church. That's early to to know if there are problems. Uh, Al, as you remember from when we discussed my book, The Irony of Modern Catholic History, mm-hmm. uh, these fights over what whether Vatican II was meant to reinvent Catholicism or deepen the church's Christocentric self-understanding and continuity with tradition began at the Council itself. Yeah, that's there was right. a division between the uh, reformist theologians, the theological advisors at the Council, uh, between uh, the camp that eventually would include uh, Joseph Ratzinger, uh, and, and another camp which really believed in the reinvention of the Church, uh, if not from the ground up, then at least from uh, in, in a very significant way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Maritain sensed how that was being uh, 
played out in in France uh, in the years immediately after the council. And what he was particularly concerned about was the lack of any, the loss of of any sense of transcendence. Wow. That that the church was running the risk of becoming simply a non-governmental organization in the business of good works. Now, doing good works is a good thing, <laughs> yes. but you cannot you cannot reduce the reality of the church, the center of which is Christ Himself, to a good works agency. And if you do that, you have not developed the tradition; you've abandoned the tradition. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, I, I think, there were there were many factors in this involved in this. Uh, one was certainly the state of intellectual life in, in Europe and the United States, Europe and North America in the late 1960s. Um, not the most calm cultural moment for <laughs> receiving the teaching of the Council. Uh, I think that the Church um, uh, really did not know how to deal in a compelling way with the sexual revolution, mm-hmm. and it really took us until uh, John Paul II's theology of the body to right. come up with uh, a uh, a response to the sexual revolution that that is that is truly compelling. Yeah. Now, I mean, Paul VI got the key issues right in Humanae Vitae in 1968, but again, the presentation was not such that. Um, it could be heard as it should have been heard right, right. by modernity, although his warnings have been you know, uh, forcefully borne out in the, in the 50 years uh, since then. So, um, uh, Maritain's lament, as I put it in the book, uh, really goes back to that division within the Council itself. Within the Council itself, okay. Be- between, not between so-called progressives and so-called traditionalists, but the split within the reformist camp itself. And, you know, I've dubbed this in, in two books now, The War of the Conciliar Succession. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how, who, who gets to d- determine what the meaning of the council is? Right. Now, the whole third part of, of To Sanctify the World is an extended argument that John Paul II and Benedict XVI did offer the keys to the council that the Council itself did not provide mm-hmm. in its own documents. The, the Council, uh, you mentioned the Council without keys. Is the right. Second Vatican Council uh, the only Council, ecumenical Council in our history, that didn't uh, em- embody within itself uh, the key to its own understanding? Yeah, I think so. I mean, this uh, this is an idea I've been working with for some time, and I I think it does help illuminate things. Look, if you want to know what the nice, first council of Nicaea meant, the first ecumenical council, 325 mm-hmm. you read that creed we recite every Sunday. Right. That's the key to the council of Nicaea. Right. If you want to know what Ephesus and Chalcedon were about in the 5th century, you read their dogmatic definitions of the two natures and the one person of Christ, mm-hmm. or of Our, Our Lady as uh, Mother of God, God-bearers, mm-hmm. If you want to know what other councils are about, you read the canons they wrote into the law of the Church, you read their condemnations of this, that, or the other. Heresy, uh, Council of Trent did all of that. 
and added a catechism to the mix, the, right. the Roman catechism. Vatican II did none of that. No definitions, no condemnations, no canons, no um, uh, catechism, no creed. So what are the keys? Where, where are the keys to unpacking this? And I think that's what those two great pontificates did over 35 continuous years yeah. of providing the keys to Vatican II. And the crucial moment in that was the Synod of 1985, 20th anniversary of the Council, where the Synod Fathers say, they don't use the term, I'll use the term, the master key is the idea that the Church is a communion of disciples in mission. Yeah. And if you read the documents of the Council, if you unlock the documents of the Council through that master key, then things fall into place. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dei Verbum uh, is so critical, uh, dogmatic constitution, it reassures us that God, in fact, has spoken. Um, and yet, there are those who read the Verbum as though it's somehow a, a, a way of liberating oneself uh, from the tradition, uh, a, a historical tradition of the Church, and that uh, uh, one can now use historical critical tools to uh, deconstruct uh, the, the, the Gospel, uh, even engage in the work of demythologization. Uh, Dei Verbum makes the point that there is a transcendent word from outside the flux of human experience, and that seems to be I, denied by many. Well, if they're denying it, they're simply not reading the document, right. because the document is an extremely robust affirmation of the reality of a divine word spoken into history, first in the people of Israel, later in the person of the Son of God, uh, definitively in the, the person of the Son of God. And um, that is exactly what is at issue in Germany right now, is the reality and binding authority over time of divine revelation. Yeah, yeah. Or to put it more simply, does do we know more than God does? Right, right. I mean, this is this is the fundamental issue in this uh, German synodal way is is the question of the binding authority of, of divine revelation. So, so uh, if we don't we have a only... divine word, if we don't have a divine word, then what we do is we basically uh, take a vote and democratize uh, doctrine. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. It's even worse than that, Al, because if you deny the reality of divine revelation, you're saying this world is a world without windows or doors or right. skylights. Right. That's claustrophobic. Yeah. yeah. And on the other hand, if you affirm the reality of divine revelation through, uh, through history, in history, you're making a very important statement about us namely that we are creatures so configured that we can hear that divine word in history and be ennobled by it. Yeah. That's a lot different than saying, you know, we're all accidents of cosmic biochemical processes. Um, uh, and that dumbing down 
of the human condition is, as we discussed a moment ago, at the root of an awful lot of the enormous sorrow of late modernity. Yeah, yeah. So the work, John Paul II, Benedict XVI then, uh, were self-consciously about the work of properly interpreting and implementing the Council. That's fair to say, right? First thing John Paul II said on his first day as Pope, when he uh, met with the College of Cardinals that had just elected him as Pope, is that the entire focus of this pontificate is going to be helping the Church properly understand and implement the Second Vatican Council. The first thing uh, Pope Benedict XVI does uh, in his first uh, Christmas remarks to the Roman Curia in December 2005 is he talks about the rupture interpretation of Vatican II, Vatican II reinvented the Church all over again, Mm -hmm. or the proper interpretation of Vatican II as reform in continuity with tradition. So he sets that agenda of key providing, providing keys, out right at the beginning of his pontificate, as John Paul II did, which is why I think those two pontificates will eventually be read as one continuous 35-year arc of providing the keys to the Council without keys. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, at the end of his pontificate, John Paul II gave us uh, encyclical uh, The Church from the Eucharist. And in that encyclical, he has to make the case, which one would have hoped had already been made, that the Eucharist is not merely a fraternal banquet. Uh, do you know, was he was he, was he unhappy? Uh, did he feel he had succeeded? I I think he understood that there were parts of the Church, I would say the dying parts of the Church, that had so dumbed down their understanding of what we do when we celebrate the Holy Eucharist, that they had, in fact, reduced it to what Ratzinger had called previously, uh, you know, uh, the community celebration of itself. And that's obviously not the truth of Catholic faith regarding the Eucharist, which is Christ himself among us. Yeah, absolutely. George, we're out of time, unfortunately, but thank you so much. Uh, This is a great piece of work, and uh, I hope it gets the wide readership it deserves and uh, that it gets absorbed. Thank you. Thank you, Al. George Weigel, To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II. 